SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing show number nine with guest Jim Gray. So welcome. Our guest this evening is a very special guest, is uh, Jim Gray, or Dr. Jim Gray. Jim is part of Microsoft's research group. His work focuses on databases and transaction processing. Jim's an active member of the research community and ACM, NAE, NAS, and AAS fellow and received the ACM Turing Award for his work on transaction processing. He edits a series of books on data management and has been active in building online databases like TerraServer.net and SkyServer.ss. Uh, sdss.org. So welcome, Jim. Oh, it's great to be here. That's great. Yes, I was. Thank you so much. When I was at uh, the past conference in Dallas, I fortunately uh, spent uh, spent a little bit of time talking to me. I really appreciated that. That was great. The what uh, I would really love to start with is if you can uh, just give us some uh, details on how you ever came to be involved in the database and SQL Server community in the first place. Well, I guess it goes back a very long way. Um, I'm <laughs> fundamentally interested in um, how we know anything and how you represent information, and that goes back to just the curiosity I had as a kid. And uh, um, as I went through college, I uh, majored in computer science, uh, especially in graduate school. It was hard to do that at the time. There wasn't such a thing. Um, but one thing led to another, and eventually I found myself working at IBM Research in San Jose. And uh, that was the database uh, mecca for IBM. And uh, in particular, we uh, were much influenced by a guy named Ted Codd, who thought that relational was a much better way of uh, programming information systems than the circles and arrows uh, Bachman diagram navigation model that uh, Charlie Bachman was advocating. And so we decided to give it a try, and we built something called um, SQL. Um, it was a, the project's name was SystemR. It evolved into the, the IBM DB2 suite of products. Um, it also gave rise to Oracle and Informix and Sidase and many other companies. Um, yes. My career... Um, Went, went along for a while. I, I, I worked at IBM for a decade. I worked at uh, Tandem Computers for a decade, built a second system, SQL system there, or maybe a third. I guess I built two at, at IBM. And then um, uh, went uh, after that to DEC and um, um, worked on the IDB product. And uh, life at DEC was very difficult because we were, um, it basically had hit a rock. It had been 30% a year growth for 25 years, and then all of a sudden it stopped. And I guess I arrived just about the time it stopped, and so I got to see a very unpleasant uh, scenario where we you know, basically had to sell off our assets. And one of the things we did was to sell RDB to Oracle. Uh, I was not eager to work for Larry, so uh, I, <laughs> I uh, was not part of the sale. 
and uh, I took a year off and, and uh, uh, licked my wounds at, uh, as a visitor at UC Berkeley and looked around for uh, where I'd like to work. And there really wasn't uh, uh, really much of a choice. I mean, it was Microsoft and everyone else, and uh, Microsoft was sort of my first, second, and third choice. Uh, mm. I'm a software guy. It's a software company. Um, and uh, it just was, you know, a very attractive place in many, 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 many ways. So I, I came to Microsoft, and once I was here, um, it was pretty obvious that SQL Server would, was sort of my uh, uh, my adopted home, uh, you know. And uh, I've watched the product evolve over the last decade. It's come a very long way, as you as you know. And, uh, oh yes, indeed. You know, I think this is a, you know, the current release, the 205 release, is really something to be proud of. It's, it's certainly a huge release. It's sort of a short chronology. Yeah. It's, it's certainly a huge release. Actually, one of the, uh, it'd be interesting to know your thoughts, actually, about the whole idea of taking five or so years on a release as opposed to uh, a series of shorter releases. Well, huge is a good word for it. Um, I think mm. it's fair to say that um, none of us fully understands what's in SQL 2005 um, any more than we fully understand what's in Windows. Um, it's um, One of the things that's happened is that database systems have become essentially an ecosystem in which you have um, the traditional uh, tabular uh, data store. Um, you have uh, an XML store now. You have text. Uh, you have data mining. You have uh, cubes. Um, there's an extract transform load service. Um, there's an English query hiding in there somewhere. Uh, there's a whole security model hiding in there. There's a management. There's self-tuning. It's just it's just awesome. Each of the things I mentioned is. Um, did I leave out XML? I, 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 <laughs> yes, indeed. So there's XML and X-querying. So, I mean, you know, it, 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 each of those things is represents the efforts of um, um, dozens, if not 100 people. Um, yes. And uh, is, is, a, is, a, is a, um, a specialty in itself. Yeah. And so, we, literally, we have this ecosystem, and getting the whole thing to fit together is, is a challenge. Now, hiding in there, in addition, is all of .NET. And um, um, I think um, the unification of databases and programming languages is um, is required, is inevitable, is essential, is important, is something we've all wanted, is you know wonderful, you know, and so on. Mm. But it's also been an extraordinarily painful process for Microsoft and for the SQL Server team. Um, I think if one had to point to one thing that uh, caused the you know the, the enormous delays because you know in yeah. essence we were expecting to ship SQL 205 and 203, and yeah. in fact I think you may have attended a launch event for it. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> airlift or something. Like that. I, I know I, I attended one in 203. And and so um, what what on earth could have caused us to miss the schedule by so much? Well, it was underestimating the complexities of unifying something as enormous as .NET and something as enormous as SQL Server. Um, mm. Certainly there were yeah, I've had, uh, you know, could have put it. Go ahead. 
Yeah, I was going to say the. Uh, I, I remember um, thinking and telling people a few years back. I, I thought uh, there was probably a time in the com- in the seventies when you could know most things about computing, but uh, I, I think there was a time a few years ago when you could know most things about SQL Server. That's about it. Yes, I believe that's the case. I, I believe that you could actually read the entire code base. Um, probably in, in uh, 95 to 97, but I think about 97 that, those, that, that ended and, and uh, um, you know, fundamentally we went from a world of um, 10 or 20 developers to a world of uh, 1,000. Mm-hmm. And uh, now there's, as I say, it's an ecosystem. Um, the, you know, one of the things that holds it together is, in fact, um, the, you know, COM or, or, or web services structuring paradigm. Um, and and uh, uh, you know that that is the, um, the glue that makes it possible to have all of these components, in fact, coexist and make it possible to debug them. Um, but getting that substructure inside of SQL was enormously painful. I mean, this this really was, among other things, a restructuring of the product internally, so that the components have fairly clean interfaces among one another. Actually, that's that's an area that intrigues me uh, in terms of uh, I, I do get fascinated with the idea of uh, how you also get a consistency when you have so many different groups of people working on different parts of the product. So. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the, the, the fundamental thing is that the currency inside of SQL Server is a data set or a TDF, tabular data stream. Um, but I think we're gradually moving away from that and towards the web services model of the data set. And so every one of the components takes in a command set. Think of the old ADB model of their commands in and data sets out. Um, and so um, the, you know, the thing that allows these components to interact um, and have fairly clean interfaces is this command in, data set out model. And so, uh, I don't, I, you know, I, um, the fact that we can get data mining and cubes and XML and, and tables um, um, and text all to sort of cohabit in the same space and, in fact, work together fairly, uh, you know, uni- uniformly, at least have it from the outside look like it's one product, is, in fact, the, the fact that underneath the covers, they're all exchanging data sets. Mm. And... Um, you know, I, maybe we'll come to this in a while, but I've done some extensions to SQL, uh, to add indices and so on, and the, the, the fundamental thing that allows me to extend it is that I'm producing uh, a data set. Uh, in fact, a table, a very simple data set, but, but a, a table uh, as an answer. Mm-hmm. Indeed. At any rate, you asked the question about, well, what about releases every five years? Um, I was yes, indeed. Yeah. To have a guy, um, I was stunned at past to have a guy come up and say to Dave Campbell after his talk, thank you, thank you, thank you for not giving us releases every year. Guys, <laughs> yes. It's great that you're coming out with releases every five years, you know, um, and, and uh, because, um, you know, um, annual releases are very destabilizing. Um, and, mm. uh, you know, it's, it's, it's much more convenient for our customers if the rate of change is a little bit slower. Uh, yes. The problem is that the rate of change actually is not really that much slower. It's that now when you get a release every five years, the release is a huge transformation. It's a huge change as opposed to mm. lots of little ones. So 
the amount of stuff that we've added in this release and the you know the the um, uh, the, the changes to um, uh, the whole development environment, the integration with Visual Studio, the, the, the various new workbenches and so on, uh, have required all of us to learn a lot of new skills. Certainly, I'm, I'm in the throes of, of learning these new skills, and I'm sure that many of your listeners are as well. Yeah. Indeed, I think the um, one one of the things a lot of people ask about why we sort of get involved with uh, the beta programs and so on, and uh, I I think for myself one of the reasons I'm so keen to be involved on a daily basis uh, as as the product's evolving is it it reduces the learning curve. Uh, I find it's a, it's the same with things like uh, the VB Insiders Group. I uh, even though it produces quite a bit of traffic for me every day on my email, the, the difference is that I learn a little bit every day rather than the day the, the product finally ships sitting there trying to make sense of it uh, with the number of things that have been enhanced or changed. And uh, the other thing I kind of like is it also means you, you tend, to have, tend to have a background idea as to why things were done that way as well. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, it's quite an organic process, and you get to see the evolution of the ideas as, as they go. Mm. And also, it's quite astonishing how many ideas get thrown out. Uh, yes. Object spaces <laughs> were in some earlier release, and they're, now they're gone. <laughs> yeah. And there are many things like that. And, and on the other hand, you know, um, now we're, we are blessed with Link, and, um, I'm, which I'm very enthusiastic about. But um, it's, mm. uh, we're watching the organic process of Link evolve. <laughs> Yeah, in, in fact, yeah, that would be a good point to get on to that and uh, sort of in, interesting to see your thoughts with that. The, uh, uh, every, every time something appears, uh, like CLR integration, for example, uh, there's been the discussion about is T-SQL dead and uh, link, link is the next in the line that says is T-SQL dead. So I uh, sort of interested in your thoughts. So, so Fortran is not dead. Um, and I just <laughs> cite and cobalt, and I just cite that as as uh, as examples that um, there's enough lines of code written in T-SQL that it's not going to die, and there's enough skill. I mean, I'm very comfortable writing T-SQL. Probably you are too. Uh, it just yes. it kind of just you know it just is so easy to write. Um, it's you know scripting languages are that way, um, and. Uh, um, and frankly, uh, VB and C Sharp and, and uh, C++ are more demanding languages in terms of uh, uh, the null program is a lot bigger <laughs> than null T SQL mm. program. Um, so um, I, you know, I think um, that you know one of the things that's kind of interesting is that any CLR program actually has T SQL at, at its root. Uh, the T-SQL execution engine is what's invoking that CLR program. <laughs> so yes. one could argue that T-SQL will, even if you don't, if, even if you're writing C-sharp, you're actually writing a T-SQL program. <laughs> mm. And, um, it, yeah. and um, so the, 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 the related thing is that there, there, the, in the development organization, there is actually a T-SQL group, and they are not brain dead. They are um, uh, working hard <laughs> to make T-SQL better. And, and so... But, you know, they are constrained by compatibility issues. But on the other hand, they've put in exception handling and they've put in lots and lots and lots of other features into into T-SQL, mm. uh, but still keeping it a scripting language and keeping it loosely typed and, and late bound. So yeah. um, I think that the, the T-SQL will always be attractive to you and to me and to, you know, probably many of the listeners because it's just 
so easy to write. Um, yeah. And it's so well integrated with the SQL language. Um, but I also think that um, for, let me call them professional programmers, um, and, mm. you know, people who, uh, uh, you know, like to have uh, uh, strong typing and like to have a good object model and actually want to build fairly large um, uh, libraries of code, that T-SQL is, um, uh, with its lack of scope, with, with its, you know, fairly loose uh, language definition, is, um, you know, is probably not going to be the language of choice for those people. But, no. you know, in Visual Studio, it's here with everybody else. It has source code control. It has project management. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's come a long way since uh, 2000. Mm. And uh, many of the arguments against it, uh, I, I think, have been uh, reduced by having it integrated with Visual Studio. Yeah. In fact, uh, I must admit, one of the... If, if I look at any area that frustrates me at times, I, I must admit it's... Uh, Probably to do with the, uh, the the looseness of it, uh, which is also a real strength of it as well. But uh, if I look, um, one, one of the things that frustrates me, for example, is that uh, there's not currently a way that I could compile a stored procedure and and have it resolve all the object names uh, at, at the time I build it. So the the whole idea of deferred name resolution and so on, I, I completely understand why it's there. But by the same token, I, mm-hmm. I do, uh, I do also wish I had a mode where uh, I could completely resolve names because I want to find those errors at compile time rather than at runtime. Yeah, but I mean, my standard thing is to create a table in one statement and then use it in the next statement. <laughs> mm, <laughs> yes, indeed. You know, that, that that's going to be really hard to do really hard in, to do. <laughs> you know, uh, um, in a uh, in a strongly typed language. We, we talked briefly about Link. I mean, Link has IntelliSense and has wonderful features. I mean, just great mm. now. But it pivots on the fact that it's a, um, a compile model. And so uh, yeah. the data definitions are static, and you compile against these data definitions. And it's uh, um, you just you don't just, uh, you know, uh, make up a string and, and, you know, create table. And, uh, yeah. and execute it, and then <laughs> another string, <laughs> and yeah. use that table that you just made. I mean, it's just that, mm. that, that um, that's not going to work in Link. So. Uh, and in fact, uh, that, that's a very, very similar thing when I look at uh, uh, implicit type conversions as well. It's a, the same sort of thing. That, uh, in fact, that the trying it's very dynamic in the language, and they're trying to be very helpful. But it also concerns yeah. me in the reverse that, that that there isn't that strong checking. So, so if I say something like uh, yeah. customer dot name equals three, the T-SQL compilers just going kind to of assume that I couldn't write three as a string. But I think a human compiler looking at that would say, look, no, that there's actually something wrong there. And yep. and so you have that reverse problem where that can sort of bury bugs deeply. Indeed. And, and you know, um, uh, the DB2 and Oracle are much more um, uh, well, strict um, about their mm-hmm. interpretation. And, and so they uh, don't do coercion, it's called. Uh, and the people who did T-SQL were uh, uh, very loose, and they said, if we could imagine a way of coercing this value to, to make it work, we would do that. And, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, frankly, I think... One could argue both ways, and uh, uh, yeah. when I'm in a hurry, 
I very much like the implicit coercion. When I'm when I'm debugging, I hate it. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And usually those are the same time. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think I, I think almost I, I wish there was a, a way to sort of turn on a switch that says, right now I'm interested in being kind of precise. Well, you know, I think there is, actually. I think that's what the ask ANSI flags are about. I think there's this thing that mm-hmm. says, be very strict, make me quote everything, um, uh, don't do implicit conversions, and so on. I think I think there's a, a, a flag. I've never turned it on, to be honest. No. Uh, but I think that's what it does, is it says, be very strict, don't do any of that conversion stuff for me. And uh, um, But there's a reason I've never turned it on. It probably would break all my programs. <laughs> Actually, well, mentioning Link before, I'm sort of interested in your thoughts as to uh, the, the whole development of that. When I, I was at a software design review back in May uh, where they were sort of showing us different versions of that, and uh, I, I must admit I, I thought the VB syntax looked a lot more natural to me than, than the uh, mm-hmm. proposed C-sharp syntax, but the, uh, but the whole idea of sort of integrating that into the language, just your thoughts there? Well, I'm wildly enthusiastic. Um, this is, mm-hmm. you know, my first react. Um, uh, um, you know, there, Microsoft has been um, uh, not very good at supporting embedded SQL, which is, uh, is in fairness, a very static way of doing things. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, allows you to get this compile time checking. Uh, but embedded SQL always had this mismatch between the variables of the language, be it you know, COBOL or PL1 or C++ or Smalltalk or Perl or Python, in between their type system and the SQL type system. And so um, one of the things that um, we've done is to make sure that the types of SQL are the same as the types of uh, .NET. That's, that's mm-hmm. step one. And then um, step two is that... Um, I think, you know, we wanted to do an object relational mapping. An object spaces was a kind of object relational mapping. If you look at WinFS, the beta, you'll see an object relational mapping. Link takes a very minimalist approach to object relational mapping. It says any row of a table is is an object, and a table is a class. And, And so there's... You know, and you can do the same thing for views and so on, but it's it's literally is a minimalist approach to object relational mapping. <coughs> and um, and so you you immediately get for every table a class, and then you get a very very um, natural uh, um, uh, programming model, which is that VB and and .NET in general, the C sharp, um, have this notion of an enumerable, and uh, tables are enumerable. And, but so is anything that's a list or a hash table yeah. or a dictionary. And, and so we can now do for each on a table. Um, but we can also do it for each on the answer to a query. And so, um, you know, the, the idea of link is that you can, um, in your program, can treat tables as uh, just natural um, collections. Uh, that are innumerable and mess with them, and cursors go away. 
Wow, what yeah. a wonderful thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm forever, forever getting confused about what the syntax is mm. and whether it's open and whether it's closed and so on. And yeah. um, so Link is going off and doing all that junk for me. And um, and it's uh, and because of the syntax it's chosen, and I agree the syntax is a little screwy to somebody who's been writing SQL for the last 30 years. Um, mm. But... You know, the, the where comes, I'm sorry, the from, the from comes first, and the select and the where come uh, later, and that's so that IntelliSense works. I, I was going to uh, say, it, uh, because we, we had a session with the guy who was, uh, the guys who were trying to do T-SQL IntelliSense, uh-huh. uh, which was in the uh-huh. first beta of uh, 2005, but uh, uh-huh. was removed. And yeah. I, I must admit, after spending an hour with him, I, I have a new found uh, respect for how, how complicated yeah. that is. Indeed. So, <clears throat> so at any rate, the the um, uh, uh, you know the, the the question you asked, Greg, was well. So, you know, what what's the story on B-Link and X-Link? And I think that you know both of them are um, uh, going to become extremely popular with the crowd who likes to program in in BB and um, in uh, in C sharp, and that um, it's uh, um, it's one of the things that might attract you away from T-SQL because mm. it really is an early binding. I mean, the people in T-SQL have a pretty easy way of accessing data. But if, if, if you write ADO.net programs, you know, we, we uh, have to somehow tease the outputs of a SQL statement into variables by, you know, saying, give me the first result and put it in this variable. Give me the second result and put yeah. it in this variable. And it's just... The amount of gunk, I'm mean, sure you've written this code, and the amount of gunk that you oh, have yes. to, to get um, the null program to work is, is just disgusting. And, mm. and you know, that's the big selling point for Link is that it's so easy to get started. And mm. uh, so, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a big enthusiast of it, although, in fairness, I, I um, haven't written very much code in Link. I've written, you know, basically a couple of demo programs, uh, but... Yeah, you know nothing in anger, I think, and um, <laughs> um, I've just been, I've been, frankly, been so busy learning about SQL 205 and you know data mining mm. and unified dimension model and 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 uh, XML and, and X query and so on. I just haven't had time mm. to, to pay much yeah. attention to Link, aside from just. Well, you know, what do you? Um, what do you, what are your thoughts on the the, the type system uh, where we've got uh, like the CLR types as opposed to the SQL types and 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 how we ever sort of get to a point of resolving that to I mean given the fact we've also got ANSI committees and so on but just yep, that mismatch the way it's going to be mm. yep. well I mean it's, it it may seem like a mismatch but I just uh, I, I I just declare everything to be a SQL type and and it works out great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, and and I and I and I take the strings and I cast them to you know I I, I cast a SQL string to a regular string and mess with it and it is mm-hmm. a bit of a pain I agree. Um, yeah. But um, you know I mean the, the problem is that um, and I was there we argued I, I'm a programmer right so I argued against mm-hmm. them. I said no are a pain they they, they make <laughs> my life miserable. And a friend of mine wrote the null memo, which was a, an impassioned plea that we get rid of nulls. <laughs> but unfortunately, we had a bunch of, of lunatic theory guys who 
thought that this was just really cool stuff having three valued logic and they love metals and mm -hmm. uh, and we're stuck with them and I've given up and just resigned myself to living in a world in which there are you know uh, nulls and and uh, you know I'm, I think it's something about yeah. you know give me the strength to you know change the things I can and accept the things I can <laughs> nulls are one of the I, I must I admit things I've, I've given up yeah, no, actually there are quite a lot of uh, programming I've uh, done in various languages over the years, but the, I must admit some of the simplest ones of the lot have been when I've worked on sort of projects where the, the people have just accepted that everything in the database is not nullable and uh, just the, the flow-on effects from that, uh, <laughs> just the simplicity of the code was just amazing, yeah. No, no, I mean, I, I when I create a table, it is, there's, Everything is not null. I mean, yeah. just just be clear. I, I mean, I, I I wish it were a default to make that the way that things go. But you know, I I just say not null, not null. Not, but but I'm blessed with databases yeah. that other people designed. Yeah. <laughs> and whenever I do those, it, it's not it's not universal. But you know, we just pretend that nulls don't exist. Actually, uh, one interesting one I'd I'd like to get your thoughts on is just the. Uh, the, the object purists that just see the database as a, a sort of a repository for an object. And, uh, and in fact, one, one that I was uh, asked about, some, someone passed me a thing to have a look at the other day, and what, what had me fascinated was just how they'd mapped the objects. And, uh, uh, for example, they had uh, a hierarchy of objects, and you might have a, an estate, which is a type of an asset, and so on. And what they, in the end, would do is they'd, they'd actually take what was effectively the base class, and then they'd built a table that had all of those uh the properties of those class as columns, but but what they then done is that all of the derived classes from that they then added all of those columns in as well. So so rather than modelling a table that was uh, estates as as one table and then assets as another, they sort of found the base class and then modelled the whole thing as. Uh, they said in the end everything was a, an, an asset at the bottom level, and then they just added column after column after column, and and, and <laughs> it, it just yep. seemed like the ugliest design when I when I look at that sort of thing. But but I just sort of wonder if that's where we head a bit when when the object guys just say, look, I need to be able to just put my objects in the database. Well, not necessarily. That's certainly that's called the universal relation, and, and mm. you just add columns to one great big table. The problem is that that table you end up with is very sparse yes <laughs> and there's a there's a different there's a different approach that let's call that the fat table approach there's mm. a different approach which is the skinny table approach which is you have um, one table um, that is uh, just the pivot of that and so that table has essentially like is it let me see if I, I four columns I think it has the 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 um, object identifier it has the column identifier and it has the value so it's three columns mm -hmm. and you can pivot table number one to get table number two and unpivot to get table number one so I mean yeah. uh, and both of those two representations have um, one thing in common they have terrible performance yeah. <laughs> and and because mm -hmm. you know how do you how do you do indexing um, and uh, um, and uh, how, you know um, so for certain operations like updating an individual field they're great but for um, for other operations um, they more or less suck so yeah. um, the, 
Uh, when we talked about link, I mentioned that there was a they took a minimalist approach to object relational mapping, which is to say they said if you've got a class, it's a table, and if you've got a table, it's a class, and mm. uh, uh, you know, and that's pretty minimalist. Um, yeah. And it requires that the classes um, uh, 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 don't have very much inheritance in them, and it, it's kind of it's kind of mute about what how inheritance works in that model, mm. if you can imagine. I mean, uh, and uh, one possibility of the way inheritance would work is the way you described of the universal relation mm. at the bottom. Uh, but that doesn't explain to me if we have two children of a parent. Um, um, you know, what, what's the table look like then? I mean, it sounds like we branch yeah. in two different directions because each, each leaf class has um, um, a separate table, but then what, where do the, what does the parent table look like? So, yeah. you know, a different strategy is that every subclass gets the key of the parent and then gets the members that are unique to that subclass. Yeah. And um, Well, otherwise you, you'd eventually... Yeah, otherwise you'd eventually say, well, you know, in the end everything's an object, <laughs> and you'd end up with one table with <laughs> yep. with every yep. single yep. column. But yeah, indeed, that's the universal relation. Mm-hmm. And and um, but so uh, you know, it's easy to have religious debates about what's the right way of doing this. Um, mm. I think uh, uh, you know uh, most of your listeners have their opinions. I'm not going to persuade any of them. <laughs> um, uh, By and large, I think the the Link guys have, um, uh, 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 as I say, a minimalist approach, and um, that's approximately the the approach that I've been taking. Um, The time will tell. I mean, we're going to see more and more of this over over the years, and uh, eventually something will emerge as as being um, a good style, or maybe two or three styles will emerge. Do do you think we'll see inheritance appear in T-SQL anywhere? Um, gee, that's a. I mean, since it doesn't have a class concept at all, I'm not sure mm. how inheritance would come in. It would, it would require. I mean, T-SQL is so loosely typed that it doesn't actually have. It's, it's, it's only classes are tables. Mm. And so, uh, I think what I'm thinking is if I, I, I for example, I, I build a, uh, a stored procedure that takes animal and and mm-hmm. I, I I can't pass cat to that. You know that that's the well, you so I just sort of wonder how that limits me. Certain yeah. procedures do have signatures. That's true, um, mm. but the signatures are pretty loose, and um, uh, you know, the, I mean, and not just that, but they return e- either integers or strings or GUIDs or or tables, and and the tables have signatures. So, and if you think of a table as a class, then you might say that that you know we actually have a. Um, yeah, but you can't pass t- tables as parameters, so it's it's mm. pretty. I think both functions and stored procedures. I, I mean, y- y- something that drives me crazy is the, all the funny rules about what you're allowed to put in a function and what you're not allowed to put in a function. And so yes. I'd say that you know the, the T-SQL guys are at a, a sweet spot where it's very easy to write T-SQL. The language is very loose, and to the extent that they start tightening it up and having more type definition and make it more and more like, you know, uh, uh, C-sharp, 
that they're going to just be mm. on a slippery slope in which they give up a lot of the benefits they have, and they're not yeah. they're not going to be as as clean as C sharp ever. Period. I mean, mm. um, yeah. <laughs> Indeed. So I, I my my bias would be to say, you know, you know, accept it. It's a great scripting language. Um, yeah. Uh, Perl and Python <laughs> might be the competitors, and you might actually go in the direction of Perl and Python. Indeed. Well, listen, that's probably a good good point to take a break, and we'll come back after the break and we'll talk about some futures for it. Okay. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. So, welcome back from the break. Uh, what I'll and maybe ask you just any, anything you want to share with us about uh, yourself or life or where, where you live. I gather you're based in San Francisco as opposed to uh, everybody else in Redmond. Yeah, I, um, we have a small research lab here in San Francisco. Um, uh, there are about five of us here, and uh, our focus is on scalable computing and also on personal uh, media management, which is to say, the My Life Bits project in which Gordon Bell and his colleagues are recording everything and, uh, about their lives and then trying to build an information management system that allows them to organize the information, annotate it, uh, find things, uh, and uh, make presentations from it. And, uh, Actually, I saw there was a video on the Channel 9 site about that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's very exciting. And... and mm. uh, Probably the best poster child I can think of of why we're building WinFS, um, which is uh, you know the WinFS would be a much better infrastructure than the kludgy stuff we built as a substructure for for uh, Mimic or for uh, um, my life bits. And the other things we're doing is is working on um, uh, scalable servers. And uh, you know the probably the most famous thing we've done is the is the Terra server. Um, but we've been working with the uh, SQL Server guys. We did a prototype of something called Always Up, which is a prototype for um, the database mirroring that's in SQL 205. Uh, um, Don Stoops did some very interesting work, called, which was called RAGS, which was uh, running the SQL parser backwards to generate SQL queries, and then running those SQL queries against Oracle DB2, Sybase, and Informix, and then SQL Server and seeing if you got the same answer. And if you got the same answer, then he concluded that all the systems were doing more or less the same thing, and that was good. If he got a different answer, then he said, hmm, this is probably a bug. In, in particular, if four of the five gave the same answer and the fifth one gave a different answer, then it was very likely that the fifth guy was wrong. Interestingly, in one case, we concluded that the fifth guy was right and the other four were wrong. But <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but you know, this was at a time when it was felt that, you know, SQL Server was, this was, you know, the uh, mid-90s, when SQL Server was bad and that Oracle and DB2 and others were better. And, and uh, I think we concluded that 
that they all had their shortcomings. And uh, but the SQL guys, had, SQL Server guys, have been using ranks since then to as a regression test and as a test for uh, SQL Server. And it's, it has had a big improvement in uh, you know the correctness of the mm. optimizer. Um, and um, I've personally been working um, with the astronomers to build um, the Sky Server, which is a you know trying to get all of these world's astronomy data online and federated. And this mm-hmm. has been another uh, experiment in, in um, using databases to manage scientific data. And yeah. one of the things that came out of that that is relevant for 205 is uh, that we put a spatial index that the astronomers find useful uh, into the samples for 205. And uh, it's actually pretty good at finding points near points and points in polygon. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, people have Several people have, have picked up on it and have used it uh, in SQL Server for their applications. Or actually, there's several people have picked it up and used it without SQL Server at all, but just as a way of mm. uh, proximity in their applications. Actually, how, how so, did you come to have an interest in the astronomy side of things? <clears throat> well, it's it's um, happenstance, really. Um, uh, we were doing the Terra Server, uh, the astronomy group that I've been working with um, had a telescope. They had data coming. They'd been building a data management system. The system wasn't working very well. Um, they came to us to ask for help. Um, we said we were busy. They went away. Um, but they started <laughs> asking really good questions. And the next thing I knew, um, I was helping them because they asked such good questions and I was learning a lot more than they were, I think, actually. And it's been like mm. that ever since. Um, so um, one of the things the Terra server brought up was the fact that we didn't do spatial data very well. And um, working with them has um, really um, you know, advanced my understanding and I think Microsoft's understanding about how to manage spatial data. And the um, Terra server was a spatial data warehouse, but it was basically completely in pixel space. People mouse around the pixels and say, give me those pixels, give me those pixels, give me those pixels. It was very, frankly, mm. very little database um, in there uh, and in, in the sense of you know complicated SQL and the astronomers um, have these really pretty substantial catalogs uh, multi terabyte catalogs that they want to ra- run ad hoc queries against and the queries it's very high dimensional data you know, hundreds of columns in the tables and uh, and they ask queries that go on for a page and so building a system that can take a random query off the internet, which is what we do, and run it and get reasonable answers in reasonable time, uh, you know, stands as a real challenge to a database guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been working on that. Yeah, actually, the, the whole yeah. geospatial area is kind of interesting at the moment. I, I, I suppose the public has got kind of a bit interested uh, since things like Google Earth and Terra Server and uh, all, all those sort of areas. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It is, it is. They've just started to realize what you might be able to do, yeah. Right. I mean, we've been doing um, Terra Server since, I think, 97. It's been on the Internet. And, mm. um, and it was very popular, still is very popular. Um, about 30 million records a day, 50 million records a day on a peak day. And, and uh, that's, that's a big deal for uh, a web service. Um, mm. But, uh, you know, uh, it was essentially still small potatoes and then Google Earth came along and people started doing mashups of Google Earth with other things 
And people that had been doing mashups with the Terra server, I mean, the Terra server has a web services interface, has had one since about 2001, I guess, is when we first came out. And it was written up in MSDN and various things. But um, um, I think um, for reasons I'm not really quite clear, um, the Google Earth much more caught people's imagination than, than for example, uh, 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 you know, the uh, Craigslist merger with, with uh, mm. uh, Google Earth was, you know, I think when I saw it, I said, wow, that is really cool. And um, some people ascribe it to Ajax, but frankly, we've had Ajax lying around for, I don't know, since for a long time, yeah. Was first Ajax, yeah, for a long time. So um, mm. maybe it's the fact that, that you know, um, uh, Netscape, uh, a.k.a. Firefox, finally supports Ajax that made the difference for this community. I don't know. Um, mm. Or has been supporting it for a good long time. Where, where do you see um, applications developing in those areas? Um, well, first, um, I, I think that um, the fact that we are at about one billion cell phones and we're heading for six billion cell phones, maybe um, sixty billion cell phones, if, if you know, if every piece of smart dust is a cell phone. Uh, mm. means that location services are going to be uh, absolutely central. Uh, there's, you know, there's four easy dimensions that we have um, in organizing information, and three of them are space, and one of them is time. And beyond that, it's really hard. Um, but yeah. those four are universal. They work in China, they work in Russia, they work in Israel. They, okay. The minute mm. you get into words, concepts, um, people have different you know, um, concepts. I mean, I, um, I think red means stop and, and uh, uh, danger, and in China it means happiness. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you can't, color, the color dimension is not a dimension that actually has very universal meaning. And, mm. um, with, you know, languages are all different across the planet. So, so I think space is a big deal, and time is a big deal. And uh, that um, certainly there's a lot of information in text. And so, inside a culture, um, it's probably uh, text is the, the main dimension that you use for organizing information. But cross cultures, I think, space uh, and time are it. And what that means is, that I think that uh, cell phones are really going to are going to drive everything. And yeah, and they are the ubiquitous uh, computer of the future. They're the PC of the future. And mm. uh, and the they, you know, one of the fundamental things they do is they give you spatial locality, location. Uh, mm. uh, and there's a there's a new generation of GPS coming that works inside of buildings and is uh, very inexpensive and is good to within a meter. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm actually the. I think we're going to have. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, the uh, the other thing the cell phones have uh, generated with the popularity of SMS has been almost another version of uh, written language. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> the, uh, which is sort of uh, in, intrigues the, uh, I think, the English scholars as to uh, to the overall effect of that eventually. But uh, And uh, in, uh, I found fascinating, actually, uh, uh, a table of... Uh, things that c if you were building a system to try and correct or interpret uh, text messages because one of the, the favorite things is that uh, now with predictive 
uh, typing on the phones, the uh, words that are, end up with the same key sequence, but where people commonly send the wrong word instead of the word they actually mean. That, that's a kind of an interesting deciphering exercise as well. But yeah. Yeah, I, I, I have spelling check correction on my email, which I often um, get some fairly hilarious and sometimes very embarrassing corrections <laughs> to my own. Um, but so, but at any rate, the um, the the theme here is that um, uh, you know very large databases are in our future, and many of them are going to be spatially organized, um, and. Um, that, that's one of the dimensions that you get time and space are the dimensions you get for free because much of the source of information is going to be cell phones and um, you'll have metadata about who the owner of the cell phone is um, you'll have some other metadata but one of the things you'll have is the location and quite frequently people will ask tell me about the things nearby and yes. that will become a very 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 common query and you know, people talk a lot about search, and usually people are doing search because they're actually trying to accomplish some task. And um, the task-oriented things is that they're routinely looking for to do something, and oftentimes what they want to do has something to do with where they are. Like yes. they're looking for a gas station, they're looking for a restaurant, they're looking for a place to park their car, mm, <laughs> um, they're looking indeed. for a plumber. And all these things are, have to do with, you know, uh, they're essentially location constrained and things. And, and uh, so I, I think, uh, you know, uh, spatial search and spatial databases are a big deal and are, are mm. already, but are going to become even more central in the next decade. Yeah. No, that's that's fascinating. The other thing, I suppose, uh, for uh, SQL Server itself, have you got feelings as to directions it might evolve? Well, <coughs> excuse me. Um, you know, I came to Microsoft to do scale-out, um, and um, we've spent um, the last decade doing scale-up and scale-down. So we have SQL Server running on Windows CE. We have SQL Server running on 64 processor um, one terabyte RAM, 6,000 disk systems. Um, so we've done a reasonable job of scale up, and we've done a reasonable job of scale down. Uh, the uh, you know SQL Server grinding out a, a million transactions per minute C is is awesome. I'm just you know stunning. Uh, mm. um, and you know, so, um, but one of the things we have not done a terribly good job of is scale out which is to say mm. allowing people to build arrays of hundreds of machines, each running uh, an instance of SQL Server, managing the array as um, uh, well, a single system, and yeah. uh, being able to drop data into the array and having it be self-organizing, and dropping queries in and having the queries run automatically in parallel. Mm. And um, I think that... Um, over the next five years, we will finally deliver on our scale-out story, and yeah. um, I'm, you know, I think that let's um, when I <coughs> excuse me when I talk to our customers, when I talk to our salespeople, when I talk to you know everyone, um, the, the the one feature that we haven't delivered on is uh, what Oracle calls rack, 
and yeah. um, and we're getting beat up pretty badly about that in the field because it's the one thing we don't do. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah. That 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 fact has not escaped the people in Redwood, and, and they, <laughs> they now realize that there's this fairly big hole in their story, and that they need to fix the hole. And uh, yeah. So I'd say, uh, you know, if um, we uh, made a decision, and, and probably you heard Peter Spiro give this talk, we made a decision not to chase the DB2 and Oracle tailpipes. Uh, we made a decision mm. to make SQL Server um, solve the next generation problems rather than the last generation problems. So we added data mining, we added auto management, we added XML support, we, we added a bunch of things which we think are forward looking. Um, mm-hmm. And we um, had limited resources, and so we let a few things slide. And one of the things we let slide was scale up. So yeah. I think uh, we, you know what what you're likely to see in the next five years is first filling out the framework that you see in 2005. Um, yeah. uh, uh, many things were thrown out of the lifeboat just before 2005 shipped. There are many things that slid into the next release. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the WinFS wave is is upon us. That's what's going to happen absolutely next. And so the, yeah. the next release of SQL Server has um, a bunch of things which you can already see in the, in the, in the WinFS beta um, of the features that are you know coming and are more or less in the can. Um, but the mm-hmm. um, I think the thing after that is um, you know things like Link and, and better integration with with Visual Studio and mm-hmm. more data mining rules and deeper XML support and more web services because you know SQL Server is now a mm-hmm. web server. And, yeah, actually, that, that's an interesting. Actually, that's an interesting question. I'm sort of wondering if, when you start to solve the scale-out problem, where do you find that that then leaves multi-tier architectures? I mean, does does everything collapse back inside SQL Server as an application server at that point? Well, I think that's already happened with two of us. You know, um, that's a fairly radical view. Um, but uh, it's a very radical view. But I think with service broker built into SQL Server, I think with web services built into SQL Server, I think with .NET runtime built into SQL Server, that you don't actually need IIS um, as the front end anymore. And the only reason for having IIS is that it acts as a firewall um, and is a part of the demilitarized zone. Because SQL Server does have a large attack surface, and you might not want to put it out on the internet. Um, but in the intranet, or uh, perhaps even in the internet, um, you could put SQL out, Server out and have requests come directly to it. And uh, I believe that our scale-out story will have a, a very large web services component too. And that, yeah. Uh, um, you know, I, I, I t- we talked earlier about how you get the ecosystem to work and how you get things to federate together. You need to have very clean interfaces, and web services mm. are about clean interfaces. Yeah. That's great. Well, that, that pretty much brings us out of time, but uh, the, the other thing I would just ask you about is just what's coming up next in your world and, and uh, what's happening, well, well, what you have know, you got um, planned? Um, you know, I'm doing an enormous number of things. I've talked about um, some of them. The, the astronomy work 
certainly the Terra server work in, in geospatial. Mm. Um, um, the um, one of the things I did not mention is that we are working uh, very hard to get scientific literature online, just as well as scientific data. Mm. And um, there's something called PubMed Central, and PubMed Central is run by the National Library of Medicine. Um, it's a SQL Server database um, that has the abstracts, um, mostly in in uh, um, XMLish format, um, of all of the medical literature. Um, and um, the uh, U.S. Congress has mandated that um, any research that it sponsors, the National Library of Medicine, or sorry, the National Institute of Health sponsors, should mm. be deposited with the National Library of Medicine and be public six months after it's published in a journal. And this is called taxpayer access. So if you get some exotic disease, you can go to the library and actually see the, the research that your tax dollars paid for rather than having to pay $50 to get a you know an electronic copy of it um, mm. as a taxpayer. The Wellcome Trust is... It becomes there. interesting as to how that... Yeah. Interesting how that works across country boundaries as to which countries... Well, exactly. So that, pay, that's, where, yeah. that's where we're headed. So... So the Wellcome Trust has mandated, which is the UK, has what mandated a similar thing. Um, the uh, Italian government and the South African government has mandated the same thing. But they don't want their libraries to be in Bethesda, Maryland. So mm. um, we've made a portable version of PubMed, and it's been installed in the UK, in, in Italy, and in South Africa. And this is going to be, a, and, and there'll be versions of it in, in Japan and various other places. And these are all copies of one another. They federate with one another using web services. And when a document is deposited in one place, it goes to all the other places. So mm. um, that's an interesting database problem, as you can imagine. Um, it's mm. a poster child app for XML web and web services. Um, it's a great SQL Server story. And uh, so I've been working with them on that. And a related project is the so-called uh, conference management tool that Microsoft has, which again is uh, another SQL Server database that keeps makes it easy to create program committees and to run conferences. And we are looking at making that a easy way of making um, open access journals. So we're mm -hmm. fundamentally trying to get the information at your fingertips story uh, for information which is public to make it freely available to people around the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, that's, I think, a very exciting project, and it's going to have very big impact on on uh, many people's lives. Um, yeah. Someday, I expect to need some medical information and be able to go to the internet and find <laughs> yes, indeed, good, good good medical literature online and easily accessible. Mm. That's great. Well, listen, th thank you so very much. We're really honoured to uh, to have well, had you, you very much talking for, to us for today. Organizing, I appreciate it. Hmm. Great, I appreciate your organizing it. It's really great to talk to you, and, and uh, um, I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Indeed. Great. Thanks.